We have got a big show today with a big reselling news update, some big sales, and a pretty big milestone here at the Galaxy. What is up, Galaxians? Welcome to another episode of the Galaxy CD's Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk Podcast. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host. First up, I would like to apologize for the fact that there was no show last week. For those of you who follow me on the YouTube, uh, you got a 16-second video <laughs> uh, that kind of explained what was going on. For those of you who just listened to the podcast, I didn't, I didn't post a 16-second clip, but what happened was essentially two weekends ago, and we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the requirement of being flexible as a reseller. Uh, two weekends ago, I attended a bunch of estate sales, and I had I got a pretty good haul, some of which you will see later or hear about later in this episode when we go through the kind of what sold recap, but there was a lot of stuff, a lot of books, a lot of movies, a lot of CDs that I would really like to have had, but not at the price that was there. So I kind of cherry picked out what I wanted from those sales. And I spent, I don't know, maybe a hundred dollars total at the various estate sales. And I left my card as I usually do when I find big lots like that. And I said, Hey, at the end of the sale, if there's stuff left over that you'd like to get rid of, give me a call. I'd be happy to work something out. Normally, maybe one in four or five of those little card handouts results in someone actually calling me last week. It resulted in three (laughs) uh, calls to come get some stuff. Two of the three ended up being, if you can haul it all the way, you can have it. One of them, they wanted uh, a little bit of money. I spent 50 bucks total uh, when all was said and done for what amounted to about 2000 items, mostly books, a handful of magazines, a few DVDs and CDs as well. So, uh, but everything had to be out of these properties by mid afternoon on Wednesday. So, I had to make the decision as a full time reseller, part time YouTuber, and podcaster to not do the show last week so that I could take advantage of that opportunity. So, my house is currently full of stuff. Josie the cat is thrilled because she's got all kinds of boxes to climb around and sniff (laughs) about. Um, And I got a bunch of really cool stuff. It took me the better part of two days total. I started working on it on Tuesday, actually, and finished late on Wednesday, about six SUV loads worth of stuff that I'll be working on, uh, which sets me up pretty nicely for getting into the time here coming up where garage sales are effectively going to end in my area. I'm in the greater Cincinnati area, so the weather's Today, it's supposed to be almost 80, but shortly, the weather's going to turn and garage sales are going to dry up. There will be estate sales, obviously, continuing, which, to be honest, is where I've had my most luck this year. Anyway, garage sales, really, for me, have not been that great this year. I've picked up a few things, but it was not nearly as good as last summer, and I don't know if there was something in me that changed or if just the stuff that was out at garage sales was not as good, but it seemed like garage sales this year were kind of a bust for me. Estate sales were really good. All of that to say, one of the things that you've got to do in reselling, obviously, is to be flexible and to have kind of the mindset of knowing what the priorities are, particularly if you're full-time. I commented on someone's Instagram post yesterday about 
moving into being a full-time reseller and I, I commented that it's never not scary. It's a, that's a big step to go from the security of a quote unquote real job with steady income and benefits. And you kind of know it's a structured environment. You're there X time to Y time and so on. And not everybody is set up mentally to make that step into managing their own time and their own business. That's a big mental hurdle. A lot of folks, I worked in commission sales. A lot of folks just can't, the the thought of not having steady kind of guaranteed income is really, really difficult. So when, as you think about moving into full-time reselling and the person whose post I commented on, I have no doubt that they would be a fantastic full-time reseller and have great success. But You've got to have, in addition to kind of lining up your finances and knowing where you need to be and setting up your processes, as Mike Golden State Picker talks about a lot, having processes that you can count on so that you can mentally get through the downtimes. Because there are, you know, here on YouTube and in the podcast world, we tend to highlight the best stuff. Uh, Instagram's kind of the same way. We, we're all about the highlights, but you're going to have that $10 day or a slow week or, as in the case of many of us, a fairly mediocre month of September. And it takes a certain amount of mental strength to be able to withstand that and trust in your process and achieve long-term success. All of that to say, last week, had we had a show... We would have been celebrating my second anniversary as a full-time reseller. I left my last job at the end of September 2019. So I've been doing this now full-time for two years. Yay, me. (laughs) Um, And as I've talked about on this show previously, you can define your own success. And I did not set out on this journey to be kind of a six-figure reseller and you know, make tons of money. I wanted to be able to make a sufficient living to match my rather modest cost of living. I live in an area that's fairly cheap that way. As I've talked about previously, it's me and Josie the cat. So I'm not trying to support a family or put kids through college anymore. So I'm in a different position than a lot of folks. But by the measure that I set up for myself for how I would measure success as I ventured into this full time, it has been a rousing success. I've made, frankly, more money than I anticipated. I've got more money in my savings and investment accounts now than when I started with this process. And I've had what I was really looking for out of this, the freedom and the flexibility to kind of do other things when I chose to last week's podcast, (laughs) notwithstanding. Uh, Again, you've got to be flexible and take opportunities when they come. But by and large, If I want to knock off at 2 o'clock to go for a walk or take a bike ride or just read a book, I can do that. If I want to sleep in, I get to do that. I I have a freedom in my lifestyle that I did not have when I was working for someone else that is worth more to me than money. So by those measures, this two years has been not only fun, but has been a terrific success. So all of that to say, if you're thinking about making that transition to full-time, those are all the things that you need to think about. Not only the finances, but what kind of life and lifestyle you want to lead and can you achieve that through reselling? I think you probably can if you do it right. Um, 
And do you have the kind of mental strength to survive through the inevitable downtimes? Business just has its ups and downs. It's it's just the way things go, and you've got to be able to get through that. So with all of that said, uh, some of the ups and downs are provided, of course, by our platform partners. So let's get into... News updates. Some reselling news here. So we're going to start off this week with Poshmark. Uh, they had their virtual, I don't know if it was Poshfest. Uh, yeah, unveiled at their Poshfest annual conference for their seller community. Several new innovations, uh, some new tools that they're giving to sellers to make their life a little bit easier. Um, they have, for starters, they have announced... Uh, Tracy Sun to the new role of Senior Vice President of Seller Engagement. So they're really kind of focusing now even more on their sellers. Uh, CEO Manish Chandra said, Team Posh is focused on investing in you. Uh, we've been innovating on the user experience, and experience, making it simple and easy for anyone to sell. They have a new uh, seller experience team, which is focused on supporting and innovating for sellers at all levels from casual sellers to larger boutiques and brands to make sure that anyone who wants to sell on Poshmark can quickly and easily build a closet online and depending on their motivations as kind of what I just talked about, grow and scale over time. Tracy's son said, we're growing the company and there's more demands on our time. We've formed the seller experience team to hold ourselves accountable to this seller customer promise and to ensure that as we grow, we have a team that's staying as close to the customer as possible. They introduced two new tools to help sellers engage with shoppers. The first is called the My Shoppers tool. It is, they say, a virtual version of clienteling, which is a department and specialty store tactic where sales associates offer personalized service to clients by suggesting items to finish a look or offer styling advice or alert them to new shipments from their favorite designers. The tool they apparently have been thinking about for some time, they say, think of your typical brick-and-mortar use case for clienteling. A customer walks into your store and a sales associate sees she's checking out a new sweater she just put out on the floor. The associate will walk up and use the data she sees and use her judgment based on what she sees in front of her, engaging with the customer in a way that may convert that shopper to a buyer. How do you take that online when you can't see what people are browsing for and you can't talk to every single person online? Our customers are looking at things through likes, through offers, and through adding things to a bundle. These are all digital versions, they say, of looking at that sweater in the store. We're taking that data and packaging it up for our sellers and making it really easy for those sellers to offer a clienteling experience to their prospects. This tool is available to all Poshmark sellers free of charge and allows them to apply that same highly personalized experience online and at scale. The second tool is My Closet Insights, which is a dashboard that provides sellers with real-time inventory and sales data. This was also introduced, of course, at the virtual PoshFest. It allows sellers, they say, to easily and efficiently understand business performance over time to inform strategy, leverage relevant tools, and to drive action and improve sales. So good on Poshmark for adding tools to help sellers grow their business. Again, if, if you're a seller on Poshmark, um, you should take advantage of these tools, take a look at them, and see how they can help you grow your business. Mercari 
has also added a new tool. Last week, they announced that sellers could now purchase shipping on its site without having to actually print the label. They're using QR codes. There's no need, they say, for a printer. Just take your package to a USPS office and show them your QR code on your phone. They'll scan it and ship your package off. Mercari had done this previously with UPS last year. You must have the latest version of the Mercari app on your phone. So be sure if you're a seller on Mercari that you go get that stuff. Um, But that's a cool thing. I'm pretty sure eBay offers something similar. So the QR code, uh, for those of you who don't have a printer or have access to a printer, that's a nice way to just be able to, unfortunately, you're stuck in the line at the post office, which over the next couple of months, they're only going to get longer and longer. (laughs) Uh, But it's a quick way to be able to ship things without having to actually go in and print the label. Etsy has offered something new. It's unfortunately not available, at least at this time, for U.S. sellers, but they have launched a feature to allow sellers to set one price for domestic sales and a different price for international sales. Quote, they say, this will give you the chance to grow your local business while expanding globally. Plus, with domestic and global pricing, you can offer free shipping. Etsy is really big on the free shipping. Uh, they say sellers in the U S shouldn't hold their breath waiting for access to the new feature. It says it is currently only available in export focused countries. They will consider seller needs in other areas over time. Many sellers as, as we're want to do, (laughs) I guess, uh, weren't totally thrilled with this new feature. One international option just doesn't work as prices in the UK can vary widely between Europe and the United States. So we would be punishing EU customers by increasing the prices to account for U.S. shipping costs. Seller in Canada called it a good step, but said offering one domestic price within Canada doesn't work long-term. Every region within Canada has a different postal rate. So effectively, if if you want to offer free shipping, obviously the shipping costs, same here in the U.S., if you're into first class or priority they do vary by postal zone shipping to other countries has the same issue so offering free shipping this is a step in the direction of helping with that but it's not it is not a foolproof method and again it's not available yet at least here in the u.s but it is a step in the right direction for etsy trying to help people out with that rough times uh over at amazon um, they have restricted or are about to restrict sellers from listing Sony branded video games. Uh, this broke mid last week. Amazon sellers are buzzing about a notification they received on Friday that said as of November 30th, so going right into the Christmas season, they would no longer be approved to list Sony in computer and video game products. The message read, in part, as part of our ongoing efforts to provide the best possible customer experience, we have implemented implemented additional restrictions for Sony in computer and video game products. Effective 2021-1130, you will not be able to list the affected products and your listings will be removed. Uh, This action does not impact your account health. Uh, Sellers obviously noted how ill-timed the notice was, giving them short notice as holiday shopping begins to ramp up. Uh, Quote, Sony branded products have slowly been added to the restricted list over the last several years. One seller said video games are probably the most broad exception within the Sony brand. The fact that this is a more broad exclusion of seemingly all PlayStation products tells me that some publishers may have been involved as well. So if you are a seller of video games over on Amazon, did you get that message? Um, 
and how big of an impact could that have on your business? Uh, that is, especially with the timing of it going into Q4, is really unfortunate. Sony is still, I'm an Xbox guy myself, but Sony is the 800-pound gorilla in the video game market, and not being able to list or sell those products on Amazon is is unfortunate, to say the least. Uh, Amazon has also taken more money from sellers. They're forcing now sellers to foot the bill for fashion returns. Amazon is requiring sellers to pay for return shipping when a buyer sends back items in fashion categories. The move comes as the cost of shipping is, of course, skyrocketing and impacts categories with notoriously high return rates like clothing. Free returns on fashion items for seller-fulfilled orders was the subject line of the email that went out. In it, sellers were told that Amazon fashion customers were not fully satisfied with the current return experience of seller-fulfilled orders. Again, this they love this verbiage. To provide the best possible customer experience, you will no longer be able to deduct the return shipping fee for prepaid labels on in-policy returns. This will take effect on October 26th, so about two weeks from now, and apply to all fashion items listed under apparel, shoes, jewelry, or watches sold in Amazon's online store and shipped to a U.S. address. Uh, Sellers, of course, were up in arms about this, and and probably rightfully so. Uh, That's a big change. That's a big cost for sellers in those categories to be able to eat. Um, One seller wrote, so small businesses like mine are expected to eat the costs for returns at a time when USPS raised their rates. We can't raise our price either since Amazon will flag it for a high price error. Another seller raised another potential problem with raising prices. Don't raise it higher than prices on your other websites. That would also be against your agreement with Amazon. So if you're a fashion seller and you have a high return rate on Amazon, um, you are no longer, starting at about two weeks, going to be able to charge essentially the customer for return shipping. So that is a fairly big expense, and there's really no workaround for it since you can't adjust the price effectively on Amazon to kind of account for it. So you're, that's another thing that you're going to have to factor into your costs of doing business. We've talked about Amazon's insurance program here over the last few episodes where sellers who achieve a $10,000 sales level in any given month will be required to take out a $1 million liability insurance policy. A seller of collectibles wrote to e-commerce bites last week that even though they're a small family owned business that has never even come remotely close to selling $10,000 a month on Amazon, they have received the email that they need to carry this insurance. Uh, You are required to provide proof of liability insurance on our record show. You have not done so. Uh, And on and on, you've got to do it within 30 days of receiving that notice or your account with Amazon will be suspended. The, the email does say that it is for $10,000 in gross proceeds in sales in one month on Amazon, or if otherwise requested by Amazon, there are multiple sellers on the various message boards who strongly believe that Amazon's plan is ultimately to require everyone to just carry the insurance, regardless of how much business they're actually doing. Uh, One seller said they would probably only reach $9,000 in sales for the entire year, and they've been requested to add insurance. So 
Amazon is really, really leaning on their small sellers, making it more and more difficult for small sellers to be successful over on Amazon. If you're a if you're a seller over there, I know I've got several viewers and listeners that are. Let me know what you think about what's going on over on Amazon. You can leave it in the chat or shoot a comment if you're watching this later. If you're listening to the podcast, of course, you can email me at galaxycds at gmail.com or there should be a link where you could actually leave me a voice message, which I may play in a future episode. So, but yeah, let us know what uh, what's going on for you over at Amazon. Uh, groups that rely on snail mail launch a campaign to, quote, fix the United States Postal Service. Uh, former Congressman Kevin Yoder has started a group uh, in the shadow of the largest postage hike in more than a decade and official service delays affecting first class mail as of, as of October 1st, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more here in a moment. A new campaign called Keep Us Posted is being launched they will engage Americans in advocating for a postal policy that preserves essential first services while accentuating the way our mail system connects and provides for our country by serving more than 160 million delivery points, no matter how rural or remote. Appreciation for the USPS and its employees became especially evident during the COVID-19 pandemic, yet since then, mail service has become dramatically less reliable and more expensive. They said in their press release, it's the only institution capable of going the last mile to reach and serve every American, but now it needs our help. Nearly everywhere I go, I hear people talking about their mail, rent, bills, prescription medications being late and pricier to send. Americans value our postal service, especially after COVID-19. They want to keep it going and keep us posted. We'll give them a platform to elevate their voices and feelings to decision makers. We look forward to working with USPS management and other policymakers to make consumer voices heard and ensure a reliable, affordable mail system. If you would like to know more, you can visit and get involved at www.keepusposted.org. So um, obviously with all the pricing increases, um, we talked about, I think two episodes ago that USPS is going to be introducing twice yearly price increases in some categories. So the price continues to go up and the service level continues to slow. Although, as I just mentioned, there's a confusing message about USPS package slowdown. Uh, Just as the USPS has slowed down first class mail, it also wants to slow down first class packages. But in a somewhat confusing message, it said it would delay that planned slowdown. But would keep in place the already existing slowdown that went into effect in April of 2020. Quote, in light of the ongoing environment caused by COVID-19 and the rise of the Delta variant affecting our customers, the implementation date for the revised service standards for first-class package service will be announced after the holiday shopping season. However, they continued in April 2020, the USPS instituted an extra day for priority two and three day and first class package service standards to account for the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. That extra day will remain in place until further notice. So we've already, as all of us in this reselling game are aware, we've already been dealing with a slowdown for well over a year now. There is a future slowdown to come, which was supposed to be implemented here in the fall that they have now pushed back at least until after the holiday, if you use 
these package services with the post office, you've probably already experienced delays as we head into fourth quarter. If it's anything like last year, they may get worse. I've already got a couple of packages that seem to be moving awful slowly, even though we're way, way out from kind of peak season. So uh, I guess it's good news that they're delaying the ultimate slowdown. But again, it's another case where they're unfortunately going to be delivering a little bit less service for a little bit more money. Speaking of confusing messaging, man, eBay made a mess uh, last week. Sellers scramble over a mistaken eBay media mail message. There was a message that went out, and I, I sell mostly media, and I did not receive this initial email. So you can, again, let me know if you did. Uh, an email was sent to sellers who offer USPS media mail as a shipping option. It said your account has active listings that offer media mail as a shipping service option in categories that are not eligible for media mail under USPS rules. In addition, eBay labels does not support shipping label printing for media mail in these categories in order to prevent buyers from selecting media mail for listings that aren't eligible for the service. We recommend you update your active listings to remove media mail as a shipping service option for items in those categories. For new listings in those categories, media mail won't be available as a shipping service. Within hours of that message going out, and to their credit, they posted it prominently on the eBay website, please disregard (laughs) uh, today's email regarding media mail categories. Earlier today, an email concerning media mail was sent to some sellers. Sellers who received the email should disregard it. No changes are being made to categories that are eligible for printing labels with media mail at this time, and you do not need to take any action. We apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused you. As always, thank you for selling on eBay. Uh, The problem is a lot of sellers reacted very, very quickly to this. I, again, I didn't receive the email. For my part, I would not probably have reacted very quickly to this because I... I know which categories and which items qualify and which ones don't. And if eBay made a change, I would probably wait to see if they changed it back or if, as in the case of this, it was a mistake. Um, And you do have other options. If you can't print a label on eBay, you can, of course, go to PayPal. You can go to Pirate Ship and you can still ship these things, media mail. So you have some options where you could continue to use it even if eBay made these changes. There was a seller who wrote in that said uh, after revising approximately 400 listings, she gets the second notice that it was sent an error and to ignore it, she wasted five hours of her time. So I, I guess the moral of the story is when you get a message like this that doesn't on the face of it sound like it makes good sense, maybe wait it out a little bit and see <laughs> uh, if it gets retracted or if it gets corrected before you make a bunch of updates and then have to go back and undo all of them. Uh, I don't know what this person did if they changed all the if they changed the shipping method or the pricing or both, but that's a big essentially if she changed 400 listings, she would have to go back and rechange 400 listings if she wanted to switch them back. So that's a significant investment of time over what ultimately was a mistake. eBay has apparently filed a patent request for a system that supposedly would allow the marketplace to take information about a buyer's offer that was turned down by one seller and send information about it to other sellers 
who have similar items for sale. The idea is that those sellers could then send an offer to that original potential buyer, knowing already what the buyer was willing to pay. They explain, uh, for example, a seller may provide the unsuccessful buyer with an offer to purchase an alternate item that the unsuccessful buyer may simply accept to complete the purchase. Further, the seller may offer the alternate item to the unsuccessful buyer for the same amount offered by the unsuccessful buyer for the primary item. So essentially, you offer me $25 for something and I decline it and Joe down the street on eBay has the same or a very similar item, he would be notified that you were interested in the item at $25 and he would have the opportunity to send that buyer unsolicited. They're not watching his item, a message with an offer essentially of that $25 or whatever that, whatever he wanted to do. So that's a really interesting option it, on the message boards that talk about it. Uh, sellers are of mixed opinions on it. Again, let me know in the comments what you think of that. Uh, eBay says providing the unsuccessful buyer with an offer to purchase an alternate item for the same amount uh, would increase the likelihood that the offer would be accepted. Um, obviously, eBay doesn't do, in my opinion, a super great job right now of identifying similar items. I see a lot of stuff that pops up in my feed that's really not related to the item I'm looking for. So I'm not sure how accurate this thing would be, but on the surface of it, it sounds like it might be a pretty good plan. I I send out dozens of offers and I would welcome the opportunity with all of my listings to send out offers to buyers who are looking at other people's items. So um, bad news for resellers of smartphones. Uh, eBay is cracking down on bad use smartphone sellers with new refurbished program requirements. To ensure consistent seller standards and item quality, we've launched three new gated item conditions, excellent, very good, and good, and removed the quote-unquote seller refurbished item condition for cell phones and smartphones. Sellers who want to increase the visibility of their refurbished cell phone and smartphone listings will now need to apply and become part of the eBay refurbished program. As a buyer, that's probably good news. As a seller, that is not necessarily good news. The good news is that the process will clean up the category and sellers who sold a lot of junk products should get downgraded in listing visibility with this requirement. It should also help sellers better compete with manufacturer-backed programs such as the one recently introduced by Samsung. Uh, the bad news is, again, this is happening right as we go into Q4. So you got to apply quickly and get approved quickly and then make the necessary adjustments to your listings for them to qualify for the program. There is a link in the article. And as always, I will link to these in the show notes and the video description below where you can get more information on becoming part of eBay's refurbished seller program. Part of the fall seller update from eBay was that new item specifics would be required. An email went out, I believe it was yesterday, that those uh, item specifics will be required by February 25th. So the good news is you don't have to get them done in Q4. You could wait until January to work on these. So kudos to eBay for the delay and allowing people to wait until after the holiday selling season to actually get these updates done. They are going to start 
as of yesterday, popping up in your feed as item specifics required soon. So be on the lookout for that. These categories include collectibles and art, jewelry, musical instruments, parts and accessories, and sporting goods. So if you see those popping up and you've got the time, you can go in and edit them now. Uh, But the requirements will not be in place, thankfully, until February. We've talked about this one a couple of times. Um, This goes into effect actually next year, but the IRS is cracking down on small-time eBay and Etsy sellers. That headline is probably a bit of an overstatement, but as we've discussed uh, beginning in January of 2022, if you sell more than $600 worth of goods through an online auction site, Etsy, eBay, Mercari, you have payments processed through a third-party payment processor like Venmo or PayPal, those transactions will be reported to the IRS and you will receive a 1099-K form detailing those transactions. For this year, this is the last year of the requirement that it is $20,000 worth of goods or 200 transactions per year. If you already qualify for that, you'll get the 1099. The new rules were part of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 and apply to anyone who receives payments for goods or services that are processed by third-party networks. Uh, The change, of course, has stirred up a lot of confusion and consternation among smaller resellers. Although, as I have talked about previously on this channel and an accountant mentions in this article, um, you've always been required to report those sales. But most people felt like if they didn't get a 1099, they didn't have to. So sellers up to nearly $20,000 in revenue were not reporting that income to the IRS. Uh, The onus for reporting this income will now fall on payment processors, and those companies will, of course, need to issue that 1099-K form to anyone who meets that new threshold. The reality is taxpayers were always required to report this income and pay federal income tax on it, even in the absence of a form. For people who are doing the right thing, this change will make no difference. Uh, Nearly one in five Americans, they say, earn money selling something online, according to a 2016 survey of adults. I'm sure that number has gone up with the pandemic. Uh, There are 19 million global active sellers on eBay, which is up 5% just over the last year. The article goes on to say that the change could actually be helpful by receiving a form in the mail from payment processors. It will be easier for online sellers who didn't previously meet that goal to track their activity along with knowing exactly what information has provided been provided to the IRS. However, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this as well, you need to be keeping really good records because this form shows just gross transactions and doesn't take into account returns, credits, other type of allowances. It includes sales tax as well. So you need to make sure as the article says, to ensure you don't overpay on taxes for any type of self-employment income. She recommends keeping a thorough record of all your expenses, including things like purchases for your home office or website supplies, mileage, and so on. Whether it's monthly, every couple of weeks, or once a quarter, definitely recommend that you track your income and expenses instead of waiting until tax time. So make sure you keep track of all of that stuff. I, once a quarter, download my eBay sales report so I can keep track of the sales tax that's been collected because I know that's going to be reported on my 1099 and I need to be able to deduct that because I don't want to pay tax on money I never saw. (laughs) And the last thing for this week, another uh, 
big company has joined the resale game. Adidas has launched a program in partnership with guess who? ThreadUp uh, called Choose to Give Back. Uh, the fashion industry, they say, is one of the world's biggest polluters, and Adidas and ThreadUp are using their scale to promote a more circular product lifestyle for sports, performance, and lifestyle wear. This program is powered by ThreadUp's resale as a service and invites customers to send their used gear back to Adidas to be reused or resold. Um, this goes into effect. Gosh, is there a date here? It was initially launched within the Adidas Creators Club app on October 7th. Program is rolling out to more widely online and in stores early next year to participate. Consumers can generate a clean out kit, prepaid shipping label through the app, and use it to send apparel and accessories across any brand or category, including their used sports gear, from its running shoes to soccer jerseys and other performance apparel. If the item is not in condition to be resold, it will go through ThreadUp's select network of textile reuse partners. In exchange for sending in their old gear, Creator Club members will earn rewards. So it's a little bit different. They're not actually giving you money. They're essentially giving you credit towards other stuff within the uh, Adidas ecosystem. So that is just another example of a big a company, a manufacturer, a retailer, realizing that there's gold in them hills with reselling and uh, partnering up with ThreadUp, who obviously is just going great guns right now. With all that being said, let's take a look at what this reseller sold over the last couple of weeks. So it's been a pretty pretty decent couple of weeks, uh, kind of the usual handful of really cool things and a lot, a lot, a lot of smalls. But let's jump into some of the items that uh, were kind of of the more interesting style. Uh, this is an item I picked up at the 127, whatever, the world's largest yard sale. I bought this for a dollar. It is Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. This was a hardcover with dust jacket from 1970. Picked it up for a buck at one of the booths here in town. Uh, 127, as I think I've talked about previously, actually runs right through the town I live. So I went on the Saturday of that event and just kind of walked about a mile in each direction. And I, I didn't find a bunch of stuff, but I did find this. Uh, $1 turned into $21.99 with free shipping. Again, as I've mentioned previously, the religious books, the concordances of the Bible and all of that stuff, old Bibles, generally do really, really well. So you'll want to try to be on the lookout for those, even if you're not a book person. Here's another interesting book from 1905, part of the Waterloo Library. This was an illustrated edition of an Arthur Conan Doyle book called The Tragedy of the Carrasco. Uh, another item that was part of a big lot, so I'm probably into this for 10 cents. It sold for $22 on a best offer with free shipping. I love old books. <laughs> Here's another one. This was a just an old, um, it's a staple bound, so it's more of a booklet than an actual book called Little Me and the Great Me. This was book one of a series called The Seven Secrets. It was written in 1957. I found this at a garage sale. I paid 50 cents for it. It sold for $24.99 with free shipping. So again, 
You can tell some of these items I've had for a while because I have switched, as I've mentioned previously, to a customer paid shipping model. Uh, but this one was part of the free shipping. But again, for that price, for 25 bucks, not bad. Here's another book from a uh, big lot that I own for a quarter, El Indio by Gregorio Lopez de Fuentes. From 1937, this was a first edition book I had listed for $29.99 or best offer. Received an offer of $25 with free shipping. And uh, for a 100x my initial investment, I will take that all the time. This was an interesting one. So this is a book by William McLeod Rain called On the Dodge. It's a first edition Grosset and Dunlap, a brand that I've talked about, a publisher that I've talked about previously on this show. From 1938, it was a Western hardcover with a dust jacket. There are versions, there are tons of different versions of this book, as cheap as about five bucks. But for the Grosset and Dunlap version, there were exactly two copies listed on eBay. Mine, which I had listed originally for $39.99 with free shipping, and another one for $400. <laughs> uh, when I looked at previous solds through Terapeak, I didn't see anything that looked like it was going to be anywhere near a three-figure sale. So I tried to price this one fairly reasonably. You could probably argue that priced at 10% of the the other book, I was probably under market value. But when I looked at the dozens of them that were available for four, five, ten dollars from other publishers, I decided not to get too crazy with this. And I listed it for $39.99. It is, it's been here for a while, so it's part of my current 25% off clearance sale. So it was down to, I think, $29.99, and I had a customer that offered me $20. And I countered at $25. He countered at $22, and I sent him a message, and I said, hey, you know, I don't see any reason to go below $25 on this. The only other version of this from Grosset and Dunlap of this exact book is $400. If you'll do 25 bucks, I'll ship it to you today. But I can't, I just can't justify going down to 22 bucks. He went ahead and bought it with a note that said, fair enough, thanks. So this was part of a big lot that I own again for 25 cents. This turned into a $25 sale with free shipping and an exceptionally long story <laughs> uh, here on Ryan's story time. Another book. Uh, Also part of a big lot that I own for about a quarter, The Aspects of Greek and Roman Life, The Making of Roman Italy from 1982, hardcover with dust jacket in really, really nice shape. Another example of a book that just there were not a lot of listed on eBay. So instead of it being a five or six dollar book, it went for $29.99 with free shipping. Another book, this one went on Mercari. Uh, John Ruskin, Sesame and Lilies. This was from the late 1800s. I had it listed for $39.99. It has been here for a very long time. I picked this up, I believe, at a garage sale for a couple of bucks. A $30 offer on an item I've been sitting on for a while, I was all about. So I went ahead and sold this thing over on Mercari, and it is on its way. I've talked about these probably to the point where you're tired of hearing about them. Schwinn Bicycle Catalogs, the 1971 specifications for Paramount, Sports Tour, and Super Sports. This was part of a big lot of Schwinn and other bicycle catalogs and owner's manuals that I picked up in an estate sale. I bought the whole box for 10 bucks. so I own these for about $0.12 cents a piece. This went on a best offer 
of $32 from my listing price of $39.99. So again, I've never, I'm out quite a bit. And that's the only time I've ever seen a, a box full of these old bicycle catalogs. But if you happen to stumble across them, uh, it's a little, obviously, if there's a hundred of them, it's a little time consuming to do a hundred listings on these old catalogs, but it has been incredibly worthwhile. This is an interesting piece from 2009, a John Deere collection no-sew fleece throw kit blanket. I was at a garage sale, gosh, two months ago, and they had four or five of these. They were asking $15 a piece. I bought all of them, so I got them for $10 a piece, sold this one. This is the first one that has sold for $39.99 plus priority mail shipping, so 4x my initial investment, which is kind of my minimum target. That's where I like to be on these kind of larger items. I like to at least make four times. Sometimes I'll go down to double, but this was a nice sale, 40 bucks out of $10. I've still got a few of these, so they're new with tags. I don't know if this person maybe had a store because they had a lot of kind of newer craft items, but we'll take that. Another book, this was from an estate sale. I got this thing for 50 cents. An Introduction to the Keys of Enoch by J.J. Hertak. This was a third edition paperback from 1988. No idea what this was about. Um, at that particular estate sale, there were a lot of books about tarot and tarot card readings. I don't know if this maybe falls into that category. Another book that was fairly rare, not a lot of them out there. I had it listed for $49.99 or best offer. Got an offer of $40 with free shipping and sent it out the door. I think I featured this one over on Instagram. If you're not following me over there, please check it out at Galaxy CDs Rocks. You get to see stuff like this and pictures of my kitty, and you get to keep track of my various workouts as I post my bicycle rides and my walks, so my Instagram is super cool. At <laughs> uh, Galaxy CDs Rocks. Anyway, uh, this was part of the free haul of the estate sales from last weekend. So I own this for exactly $0. Threadgill's The Cookbook by Eddie Wilson. It is a second printing hardcover with dust jacket. It was essentially in like new condition from 1997. I have no idea what it is about this particular book that made it so valuable, but sold comps. We're in the $40 to $50 range. I had this listed for, I think, $50 on Mercari, $49.99 on eBay. And it sold for $45 on an offer. So again, I don't know that it's one you're likely to stumble across. There were only a handful listed online, but a, a pretty valuable book, Threadgills, the cookbook. This is another set of books also from the estate sale. This was part of the buy. So I own these for a dollar a piece. So this is a $4 set, the works of Flavius Josephus translated by William Whiston. It's a four-volume set from 1980. Um, the Flavius Josephus works set or individual volume is fairly valuable at any time. Again, I own this for $4. These sold for $49.99 plus shipping. So that's a pretty nice sale. So kind of be on the lookout for those. Again, if you're inclined to scan through the book section. I have had this for quite some time. It is some really old tech. It is a Garmin mobile PC GPS receiver. Had its manual and its quick start guide and was in its box. I picked this up at a charity garage sale 
for $10. It sold for $72.99 with free shipping. This went out in a priority mail padded envelope. Really interesting item. It is essentially a GPS receiver that connects to a laptop that then shows on the laptop screen GPS navigation. So pretty old school tech. I don't I don't recall when this thing was actually manufactured, but it is pretty old, as you can tell from the picture of the laptop on there. <laughs> uh, but I figured I'd take a flyer on it for 10 bucks. I've had it since probably June. have had a couple of watchers on it. Nobody really did anything, and finally it sold for $72.99. Here's where we're starting to get into some of the big winners from last weekend's estate sale. So this is a Time magazine from May 7th, 1945, Um, immediately after the suicide of Adolf Hitler, where he made the cover with the red X across his face. This particular one was not in fantastic condition. Uh, As as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, there's some wear on the cover. The first couple of pages were loose. Uh, The cover had some damage on the spine. So this was not a pristine copy of this. Had it been a pristine one, I think it probably would have sold for Two or three hundred dollars as it is. This is one that I bought as part of my lot. I own this essentially for eight cents. I put this up at auction because of its condition. I started it at $99.99 plus shipping. It received 11 bids and ultimately sold for $121.50 plus shipping from an investment of eight cents, which essentially paid for that entire day's worth of estate sales. So I've got a thousand items probably (laughs) uh, that were paid for by this one item. So again, not super likely that you'll come across one of these, but if you do uh, pick it up, this was at originally at the estate sale and they were asking $50 for this. So of course I did not buy it when I went back and made the offer on the lot. This was part of the bunch of stuff that I bought essentially for 50 bucks. So really, really nice flip. And now we will have your flip of the week. This was from another of the estate sales. I'm walking around looking at a lot of books and I stumble on a shelf that has a bunch of old TV and radio vacuum tubes. And I know there's a market for those, but I didn't know quite how much. I looked at this particular setup. They had four pairs of this RCA 6550 electron tubes. The box said it was a matched set. I had no way to identify whether that was in fact still the case. I had no way to test these, but when I looked up the comps, sold comps on these were $100 to $200 per pair. So they had them listed for $5 a pair I did a bulk buy with some other stuff. I essentially got these for $250 per pair. So I have $10 in four pairs of these electron tubes. I listed them Saturday morning at what I thought was a fairly conservative price because I had no way to test them. They are listed as untested, uh, no returns, as is. I listed them at $99.99 plus shipping. Customer, as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, there is a one that was purchased for $99.99 plus shipping. And then there is another sale when they realized that I had more of these. He bought the other three sets at the same time. These sold within two hours of me listing them. 
for a total of $399.96 plus shipping from an initial investment of 10 whole dollars. So that is uh, that was a week maker because going into that Saturday, I had done $300 <laughs> uh, total on eBay to circle clear back around to the beginning of this, being able to take the good with the bad. It was not a really good week. And this sale obviously just made made the whole week. It took me from $300 to $700 in sales, plus whatever else I did on Saturday. And it ended up being a, a salvaged a pretty good week out of it. So again, like with a lot of the stuff I show or talk about on this channel, not all these electron tubes are worth a bunch of money. I sold one lot of smaller tubes. I think there were 14 of them and I sold them for 22 bucks. So they're not all worth a ton of money. But if you come across... The larger, these were probably close to three inches tall. If you come across the larger tubes, particularly RCA or a brand called Tungsol, T-U-N-G-S-O-L, take the time to look them up because uh, they can be worth a fairly ridiculous amount of money. That, frankly, surprised the living crap out of me. <laughs> uh, not only how quickly they sold, but for how much they sold for. So... With that, I'm going to jump over here into the comments, and we got a bunch of good mornings. Uh, Prenny's Prize Possessions, Brandy, my reseller treasure, thank you for coming by. Jim Lucas, thank you. Uh, appreciate your comment from last week that you would catch me this week. Uh, Elaine HGD, thank you. Happy days. Uh, Rockstar Flipper said there's a new 1099 tax rule. Anything above 500? Um, it's actually 600, but yes, that, that is coming for next year. That's what we just talked about. Uh, happy days also says, thank you for your videos. They're very informative. I try, <laughs> uh, obviously this is a very different channel from a lot of kind of the reselling YouTube channels, which are much more kind of entertainment based, which is fine. Uh, but that's, I'm not much of an entertainer, <laughs> uh, but I try to provide you with some useful information, some things that you may have missed in your travels while you're busy doing your actual reselling. So hopefully people find this useful. Uh, have fun flipping my buddy, Tim, congrats on the two years milestone. Another two years and Josie will be re ready for her reseller pension. Yeah. The way she crawls around on the books and stuff, she's already, <laughs> uh, ready to get in on the action. I wish she was a little more helpful. Brandy, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Francisco, haven't seen you in a while. Greetings from California. Hello from Ohio. Uh, Tam and Bell sell. Hello. I appreciate you stopping by TRB collectibles. How many items would you say you have in your unlisted pile? Man, that's a good question. I would guess probably somewhere around 3,500 items right now be with the estate sales that I have done over the last four or five months that I'm continuing to kind of wade my way through. I would think that's probably the number. One of the sales that I had last week that I actually didn't put on here, I had listed, you may recall, if you've been following this channel for a while, about a year and a half ago, I bought that 8,000 CD lot. And I had several thousand of those that I've put into lots of 30 that are available on eBay, kind of mystery lots for 20 bucks. But I had still probably 2,200 that I had sorted and I knew weren't worth listing individually. I listed a lot of 500 of those on the Facebook marketplace. I had someone reach out to me and asked if it was still available. I said, yes, not only is that available, I could probably build you four or five more lots that size if you would be interested. 
He said, how much would you want for all of them? And at this point, I was happy to just get rid of them. So I sold approximately 2,200 CDs to this fella for $225, which sounds like a loser, but I sold them for essentially 10 cents a piece. And as you may recall, I own all those CDs for less than four cents a piece. So it was still a reasonably profitable sale and it cleaned out a ton of old dead inventory that I don't have to work around or mess with anymore. So I was really, really pleased with that. Um, and that gets me down, obviously, quite a bit. But it's still, it's an easy 3,000 or 3,500 items um, just from the last couple of months worth of estate sales. And I do tend to try to bulk up as I get into kind of mid-fall. I try to make a couple of big bulk buys knowing that in my area, there are not going to be many, if any, garage sales for the next two or three months. So I like to have some stuff on hand that I can work through over those slower months. Uh, You'll see, I'll probably start doing some thrift videos again, which I did last winter as I went out to the thrift stores. And I'll pick up one or two items here or there, but not a ton of stuff. So having, I know most people would consider that to be a massive death pile, but to me, that is just backstock inventory that allows me to continue to grow my business during kind of the slower times of year for sourcing. So thank you for the question. Uh, TRB collectibles, the margins on those book sales. Yes. If you can, again, there are my SUV is currently full of dud books that I'm going to be donating to a friend of mine who has a kind of a charity used bookstore. So when you buy 2000 books, maybe half of them are going to be duds. But when you own them for $0.10 a piece, you can afford to react to those duds and not feel like you're losing a ton of money. You've obviously invested some time and some effort into getting them sorted, but all in, it ends up being a really profitable venture. And again, I don't just buy lots of books to buy lots of books. I, I want to make sure that there's especially older or antique books. I've been to any number of sales where there are just hundreds of kind of contemporary fiction, you know, Tom Clancy and Hillerman and, you know, all of those, you know, Webb Griffin. And those books are all but worthless for resale. So if that's the kind of estate sale I'm at, I don't, I don't leave my card <laughs> uh, at those sale. But if, if they've got a bunch of antique books and I end up with a handful of these other kind of non-valuable books, I'll go ahead and take that. Uh, Tam and Bell sell. Enoch was supposed to be a lost chapter from the Bible. Thank you very much. The book of Enoch. Apparently it had stuff about aliens and stuff in it. Oh man, I should have read that. I'm, I'm all about the aliens. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Uh, $0.08 cents to $121.50 is amazing. That's 1,518 times your original investment. Uh, yes, uh, that, that's good stuff. TRB collectibles have a bunch of CDs I need to unload. That's a great way to do it. Yeah. It took a while. I've had that listing up on Facebook Marketplace for probably six weeks. So it did take a little bit of time to unload those, but I finally found a buyer. He has a a flea market booth where he sells them for a buck or two a piece. His cost of goods sold is going to be 10 cents each, so he can still make pretty good money on them. And he's got a ton of inventory, again, to kind of get through what might be a little bit slower season. Uh, what are the best practices in order to get invited to an estate sale cleanout? I've talked about before just establishing relationships with those people when you go to their sales. 
you know, be sure you talk to them. I don't hesitate to let them know that I'm a reseller, that I'm looking for particular items, books, movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, so that they can kind of be on the lookout for those things for me. And I've got one, she calls me probably once a month and tells me, hey, I've got a sale coming up next week or whatever it is. It's got a ton of old books, so you want to make sure you come. I leave my card. I leave my information. I say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to buy these, but not at the one to two dollars a book. The 10 to 25 cents is a little more in my wheelhouse if I'm doing a big buy. But in a lot of cases, as was the case last weekend, they're just happy to have someone come and haul that stuff away and they'll give it to you if you can get it out of there in a timely manner. Because if you, if you don't do it, they've got to, they've got to clean the house out. So they've either got to donate them or take them to the dump. And as I said, for me last weekend, it was, it was six SUV loads. So that's a lot of work off of their shoulders. So it's an opportunity for them to essentially save some money. So they're not always super concerned about making any money on those kind of deals. So um, as, as we've talked about regularly networking and talking with people and not being afraid to let people know that you're a reseller can be super, super valuable. With that, it looks like we're done with the chat. This was a exceptionally long episode. I'm a little over an hour, so thank you for everyone who came out and stuck with it. If you're listening to the podcast or watching the video later, please feel free to leave a comment on anything we talked about. I try to respond to most, if not all, comments, so please feel free to chime in. I appreciate everybody choosing to spend a little bit of time with me. And now, it's time to sell. You have been listening to the Galaxy CDs Rocks and Flips Reseller Talk podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you again next time.